everyone, and welcome to another episode of Buckeye Dads Discuss. I'm Josh. And I'm Andy. And one more week closer to the end of 2020. Andy, I know this uh, year's been pretty shitty for both of us, but uh, we're getting there, man. We're getting there. Hey, man, this is like the end of a blowout game where it's we're going to stay on the field. We're going to keep running plays, but let's get that clock running. Let's get off the field as quick as we can. For sure. So uh, we've bounced around a lot lately between you know news, politics, sports, uh, pop culture. Uh, nominally, we are a parenting podcast as well. Uh, and so you had the brilliant idea to kind of laser in on that topic. And uh, that's what this episode is going to be devoted to. So tentative title, uh, being a dad in 2020. So we're going to spend uh, a lot of time today talking about being dads, uh, what, how that's impacted our lives, what we feel about fatherhood in our specific families, uh, how we think about fatherhood applied to our generation and the generations before us, and what are some of the specific things that are really issues for us in 2020. Spoiler alert, it's everything. <laughs> it's everything. Uh, Andy, so kind of just, you know, give us the big picture first. I mean, you know, obviously we don't need uh, all the intimate details, but walk us through, uh, you know, you becoming a dad and kind of how that changed you. Yeah, so I took a little bit of the, uh, we'll say the less traditional route. So I became a stepdad before I became a dad. So became a stepdad to a, a wonderful kid who was three and a half at the time. And then quick math in my head three or four years later had a, a son who just turned four last week so I guess, I guess that's the the short version of of my route to being a dad how about you I can't believe he's four already wow the years go by fast uh so for myself uh the pretty traditional route uh my wife and I got married we went off to Punakana for our honeymoon and shortly thereafter, we came back and I found out that I was going to be a dad. I was shell-shocked a little bit, uh, not in a bad way, but uh, we were told by her doctor that, oh, it's going to take some time for the birth control to get out of her system. And and so I did not think that it was going to happen that quickly. Uh, but my wife and I uh, have agreed on quite a few of the big decisions that we wanted in our life. And we both wanted to be young parents. Uh, we were the first in our, you know, extended circle to get married, first uh, uh, conceive a kid, and we don't do anything by half measures in the Stoll household. So, uh, bing, bang, boom, married, moved into a house, uh, found out that we were pregnant, and uh, it's been, my oldest is now going to be seven in a couple months, so time flies. That was a hell of a week for you guys. Yes, it was literally get married, go to... Punicana, come home, close on the house, and then, you know, uh, maybe a week or two later, um, you know, she tells me that she's pregnant. We invite all of the grandparents out to uh, family dinner for Mother's Day, and then we drop the bomb on them. They were all very excited, of course. Uh, first grandchild for all of them on all sides of the family. So, yeah, it's it's started off quick for us, and uh, we've just kept adding and adding. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think our family size is definitely we're we're sticking where we're at with two, so I think we're going to go with that uh, 
that classic family of four. What about you? Are you done? You add more and you got a, another three or four in there. Oh, Andy, why you got to put the screws to me like this? Um, I don't, uh, the honest answer is I don't know. I am the oldest of four children and I'm used to having a very big family. Uh, my wife is kind of a weird hybrid of only child and oldest child. So she had about 13 years or so where she was essentially an only child. Uh, and then she had a pair of siblings on both sides of her family. And she's, you know, very motherly and maternal. Uh, so she has both of those kind of characteristics and she always uh, wanted a big family, uh, you know, not coming from one at all. So, Man, I feel like for 2020, I feel like us having three kids is a large family for our generation. But who knows? You know, maybe we'll maybe we'll add one more. I would agree. I think three is getting to be. I mean, I think that two that line between two and three these days is probably the line between, you know, a medium sized family and a large family. So I get that. How about uh? How about becoming a dad? Was was it what you thought you would thought it would be? Was there anything that shocked you about it? Was there anything that was a pleasant surprise or like a oh I didn't think that was going to happen? So this podcast I think is going to be pretty cheesy, and I think that's okay. Um, I I often take a lot of flag. I think most like mostly lightheartedly for being a little uh, dispassionate and logical and uh, and not showing a lot of emotions. Uh, but fatherhood was everything that I thought it would be in more in, in a very positive way. Uh, before I had, uh, I, again, I have three boys. Before I had my first boy, I, I can't remember the last time I held a baby before my firstborn. Uh, you know, I, I thought babies were cute and they would get, uh, you know, an awe, you know, and that, and, and, and that was pretty much the extent of it. I had no interest in holding your baby. You know, I didn't want to break it. Uh, I, you know, it had no attachment to me. It didn't do anything cool. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I like kids and I always wanted to be a dad and I always kind of prioritized that in my life. Um, but I just didn't really have any connection to other people's little kids. And so, I, you know, I'm not gonna lie. I was a little, a little worried the first time, um, you know, I'm in the hospital room you know, you have a scene straight out of the movie of aliens and you're like, what's going on? Uh, you know, what's my life going to be like for the rest of this? But man, I, the, the, the cliche is true. I, I do honestly believe this. Like they gave me my son to hold in my arms for the first time. And I feel like my whole world turned on its axis, you know, parts of my brain that had, you know, been dormant up to that point kind of woke up and turned on. And uh, it really just changed everything about how I looked at the world, how I looked at my wife, how I looked at my, my newborn son. Uh, and it's a feeling that just I, it cannot be replicated in any other way. Uh, and I got to do it two more times. Um, and each time it was special in its own way. And uh, fatherhood is just, it's really amazing. Yeah, I'm 100% with you on that. I think I had pretty high expectations going in. I also, you know, from the time, I mean, when my, when people would ask me what I wanted to do when I was like six years old, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would say a dad. And so, I mean, I, I'd really had my sights set on that for most of my life. And I, I, there was a big part of me, I think that was afraid that there's no way it could possibly live up to the, the amount of hype that I had for it. I mean, I was so excited. It's like, there's no way it's going to be as great as, as I think it's going to be. And, and 
it has been every step of the way. You know, I'm not saying it's not been a challenge, but it's it, it has been an amazing process. I'm with you on the babies. Um, I didn't hold people's babies, and, and here's going to be a really dumb moment, but I literally thought if you didn't support the head of the baby, because you know how they always tell you, you got to support that of the baby. I thought the baby's head would fall back and it would break its neck and die. And that is the big part of why I was terrified of holding babies. I'm not, I, you're laughing, but I'm not, I'm not kidding. I was terrified. And this happened, this actually happened at your house. I held a baby like three weeks before my son was going to be born. And I still believe that. And I didn't find out until the car ride home. And I told my wife, my wife that, that's what I was afraid of. And she said, that's, that's, that's not what's going to happen. <laughs> it's just not the baby can't breathe if you do that, but it's okay. You just have to tip the head back. I literally had no idea. I thought it, if you screwed up one time, the baby would die. <laughs> so that was, I, I'm glad I had that moment three weeks before he was born. Otherwise I would have been absolutely terrified that I made one mistake and he would die. So I didn't know anything about babies. The first diaper I ever changed was in the hospital. I, I and, and I took like the get ready for babies classes and everybody there was like yeah this is super easy and I, I like had my notebook out like pages of notes like and I, I do what like I gotta attach what to what now uh, so I, I was actually very afraid of the baby process I was excited about the whole idea of having a kid but I was like all right like year one is just something I got to get through because I'll be fine when it can start walking and talking but I don't know what to do with the baby so, and luckily it, you go ahead you're acting like I wouldn't believe you when you, when you came to the to our hospital room. I forget which kid it was that you were holding. You were holding them like they were an expensive piece of china. Like you like didn't have the baby like up against your body, and you were like holding your arms at a weird angle. And I was like, "What is he doing right now?" Like, and it could not have been a more hot potato type situation where you're like, "Oh yes, somebody else wants to hold the baby. Please go go ahead and take it." So. I, I, I literally thought one mistake and the baby would die. <laughs> I can easily, easily believe that that was the case. Um, but yeah, I kind of agree with you. And again, like we're not going to be, you know, we're going to be realistic here. This is Buckeye Dads Discuss. We're not going to sugarcoat this. Like the when I get asked by prospective parents, like what's your one piece of advice? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be a dad. I'm going to be a mom. Like, what do you have to say to me? I've given this to multiple people. The one thing, the first thing that I always say is the first three months are a phase and they will fade away in your memory and you will forget them because the first three months, as joyous as it is to hold, you know, a part of you in your arms and, you know, and to feel that connection for the first time, like just, I, it's like fuzzy in my head, you know, like you're not sleeping, the days and nights run together, you know, there's constant demand by the time you've, you know, your baby's due to eat and you feed him. And then by the time you burp him, you know, there, it's really not that much longer until your next bottle. Um, my wife and I came home from the hospital the first time. And we were all set that like, oh, we were gonna, we were gonna breastfeed, you know, that's, you know, I feel like our generation has very much been the like, you know, you really need to breastfeed your baby and, and, you know, all these extra health benefits, which are, you know, which are, it is good to breastfeed your baby. I'm not saying it's not, but it hadn't really taken when we were in the hospital and they were like, oh, the nurses were like, just keep trying or whatever. And we came home uh, that first night and it almost broke us. So they sent my wife home with 
insufficient pain meds. She can barely move, uh, you know, a couple hours after we get home. And, and the baby is just screaming and screaming. And we're trying to feed him. Or I shouldn't say we are trying to feed him. She's trying to feed him in only the way that she can. Uh, and it's just nothing really seems to satisfy him. And it's, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, three thirty. I was rocking him in his rocking chair and had worked for a little bit. And then he started wailing again. And then finally, you know, we got to the point in the middle of the night where I looked at her and I was like, I was bottle fed. And she was like, I was bottle fed. And so we went down and we made a bottle and we stuck it in his mouth. And and that that was the end of that. He was perfectly content from that point on. And uh, we never even tried to go back to breastfeeding. And all three of our kids were, were bottle fed. And and uh, I'm sure they'll turn out just fine. But uh, but yeah, those 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 first three months in particular are just they can be killer. I like that idea. Of the, I, I think every dad has that moment where they get that kind of go to advice for when somebody's going to have their first kid. And you're like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in my piece. So here's something I wish somebody would have told me. For me, I think it goes all the way back to the hospital. And I think the advice that I've probably shared the most is the hospital is the one place where you can try stuff that you don't know how to do. And there's people there that know how to do it. So I know that there's people that enjoy the nurses coming and fussing. And to me, I was like, I'm changing every diaper because I have no idea what I'm doing. I, you know, had to learn the little circumcision ice cream cone. I had no idea what I was Mm -hmm. doing with that. I couldn't even get this dude in a onesie. (laughs) So I was like, I am trying everything, swaddling. It's like, I am trying everything while the nurses are. They probably seven nurses showed me how to swaddle and I still sucked at it, but I tried it. I was like, well, they would come and say, do you want me to do it? I said, no, let me try it. I'm going to fail. And then you show me how I'm doing it wrong. But that is the one opportunity that you have where there are people who are professionals at taking care of babies, they can show you how to do stuff. So I would say, take advantage of that. Try stuff in the hospital where the kid is hundred percent safe. If you do something really dumb, the nurses will let you know and say, don't do that again. So make mistakes in the hospital because when you get home, there are no more nurses to ask. <laughs> I'm going to piggyback off of that. So 100% co-sign what you just said there. Um, because again, I also need the reps. Like again, I need, you know, diaper changing reps. Um, you know, I need, you know, uh, circus, circumcision, uh, you know, maintenance reps. Um, luckily, my two older kids uh, both hated being swaddled. So I didn't really have to uh deal with that too much they both wanted their arms and legs to be free but the thing i'm going to add on to that is when you're in the hospital those are the last nights that you have to get good night's sleep before you go home so if you know the nurse says hey do you want us to take the baby to the nursery so you can get some sleep or whatever put your pride aside and say yes i know you're very excited to have a baby but once you go home man it's curtains for your for your sleep for quite a while so um yeah, take advantage of that and, uh, you know, get those last, you know, get that last night or two of, of good sleep that you're going to have for quite a while. Yeah, I made the mistake of saying, no, leave him in here. Um, at, at one point, we must have both fallen asleep and I woke up and he was gone and I was, you know, tearing around the 
baby ward trying to find the you know the little room where they have the babies and the cards and and say where is this dude because i fell asleep and now he's missing and i don't know what's going on and they're like yeah you were asleep when we took your baby enjoy the sleep i was freaking out so i did not make that <laughs> that wise choice when i was in the hospital all right andy so how did maternity leave go for you so i i have strong feelings about maternity leave but i want to give you a chance did you did you distinguish it in particular between the other early days of of your kid being born or um any because for me maternity leave was probably the toughest you know part of those three months yeah so i had i think six weeks that i was able to stay home and i i mean i can't imagine not having stayed home, both from an emotional perspective. I mean, that was great to be able to have that six months of integrating an, a new person into our family. Um, but also just like, I, there, there's no way I would have been able to go to work. Like there, there, there was just no chance in those, those first six weeks. I mean, like you said, I was sleeping none. I was driving him around in the car to try and get him to go to bed at like three o'clock in the morning. No chance I would have been able to go to sleep. So yeah, I mean, I think I enjoyed it. I was absolutely devastated when I had to go back to work. Um, that that was like a rough, the last week of it was, I was like, there's no way I can go back to work. So obviously I made it, but I thought it was a great experience. It sounds like maybe you had a little bit different of an experience though. Well, I'm still seething right now because six, I, I could not imagine if I would have been able to take six weeks. Um, that, that sounds amazing. Um, I, you know, don't get me started on maternity and paternity leave here in the United States. It's pathetic. It's embarrassing. Uh, it's one of the things that, you know, I'm not going to be able to take advantage of it uh, for my generation, but hopefully by the time my kids have uh, start having kids, uh, we will have put some kind of legitimate uh, paid maternity and paternity leave in place. Um, so because of that, I mean, I had, you know, I took a week for my first one. Uh, you know, with the weekends involved, you know, it ended up being somewhere in the eight, nine, 10 day range or whatever. Um, and, and really the kind of the first step to me transitioning to my current job in this, in my same company was for my second kid. My second son was born on a Wednesday, I believe. And on Sunday, I was back in the lab or back at work trying to get some things done for some very, you know, important uh, clients and whatnot. And that was just the beginning of the end for that, uh, current job. So the, the thing that I struggle with for maternity leave, right. Especially my first one was just, you know, you're, you've completely reshuffled, uh, you know, the roles and responsibilities in your household. Um, and so I had a very hard time adjusting to the fact that I would go into work for eight, nine, 10 hours. Again, both of us are getting really shitty sleep at this point, uh, which is no one's fault, but it's just a, you know, a fact of life at that stage. Um, and so I would come home very exhausted from a hard day at work. Uh, you know, my wife similarly had a very difficult day with, with a newborn. Uh, but then, you know, it would be, Hey, I need you to, you know, do a, B and C with the baby. I need, you know, I need some time to myself to kind of decompress or whatever. Um, and it was just a very much a like, okay, like I need to transition now. This is not just, you know, my wife and I by ourselves, I come over and work and we eat dinner together and, and I just kind of, 
you know, can go about the rest of my evening, um, you know, that you would have to work through sleepless nights and, you know, the worry and, and, you know, almost physical manifestation of, you know, if my kid's sick and and how am I going to get through my first, uh, you know, fever or my first bout of diarrhea and, you know, is my, you know, kid developing okay and, and all of that. Um, and really, so the fact that she was home and me just not having yet wrapped my brain around the fact that it, she was not just, you know, lollygagging around the house, um, you know, that it was just as difficult. And, you know, that's something that you, you hopefully you quickly learn. Um, but, you know, maybe it took me a little bit longer than it should have to learn. Um, so versus, you know, once both April and I had started going back to work and, you know, we get the babysitter situation in place. It's a more equitable you know, we both went to work, we both come home, we both do baby stuff. And for whatever reason, it, it worked itself out. Okay, so definitely not. Uh, I'm the, the highlight of, of me being a dad, um, as far as that that first maternity leave and, and kind of adjusting to the fact that, you know, while great things, uh, you know, were happening as far as having a, a, a new baby in the house, that would also mean less personal time and less couple time and all of that. Um, but it ended up all working it out in the end. So, yeah, I mean, now ideas like personal time a couple time are just lovely ideas that we have in the rearview mirror of <laughs> memories of things we used to be able to do. Oh, Andy, Andy, it's to the point now where, like, I don't even remember what it was like to not have kids. Like the time in my life where there were no babies and no, you know, diaper changes and waking up in the middle of the night. Like it's all just kind of fuzzy. No, oh, what, like I can't even imagine. What did I do? How did I spend all of my time in the evening before I had kids? Like, you know, you know, in the in the instances where my wife and I shipped the kids off to, you know, the grandparents for a day or for the weekend or whatever. Maybe we have something fun socially planned. Maybe we just need to catch up on um, errands and things around the house. Like, you know, usually after a couple hours go by, we're we're sitting in the living room just looking at each other, like. So what do we do now? Like it's just it's so much slower paced. I just can't even you know handle it. So I definitely have that same feeling of I don't have a clue what I would do with full days every day. To me, a treat these days is is getting to go for a run without pushing a stroller. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how far we've come! So, so I, go go okay. for it. So I think your last point, I think, segued pretty pretty well into the first thing that we're thinking about talking about today, the idea of gender roles. Um, and I think this is where we're kind of trying to compare things to maybe how our parents' generation was versus our generation. So I, I think there's definite differences in the gender roles. So what do you see as those differences of, of our generation, generation, what are we, X, Y, whatever we are versus our parents' generation? Yeah, okay, so you and I are both right in the middle or so of the millennial generation, Gen Y, whatever we are. Um, I think our parents are both pretty comparable in age and they're like either the oldest Gen Xers, but I think they're actually more like the youngest boomers, basically, if I were to look at a, if I were to look at the years. And so differences, I would say I grew up and I, and it's still something that I can try to rationalize I'll rationalize my way through it but I still kind of you know believe it in my bones you know I grew up in a you know it is the man's responsibility to go to work 
and provide for the family. And that was something that my dad modeled uh, for me. And that was, you know, a very, uh, you know, strong gender role uh, that was in my house. Um, and it's something that has certainly changed. You know, it's 2020 now. We have plenty of uh, women breadwinners um, in households. Um, we've gone from a time in our parents' lives where, you know, you could maybe get by with just a one income out household um, or maybe, you know, one parent just has to work part time. Uh, and now I would say in 2020, unless you're very well off, there's a good chance that, you know, both parents are working outside the home just to be able to financially make ends meet. So I would say uh, from a gender role perspective, you know, what dads in particular have to do around work um, is definitely a strong gender role that I think has changed over the course of our generation. Yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And I, I think it's, it's sad because I think it was nice when we could have parents, you know, whether it was a mom or a dad staying at home, when you could have, like you said, a, a household that could exist on a single income. But I, I don't think that's even, unless you're talking real, I, I mean, it's got to be six figures at this point, right, to be able to have like a single income household that works. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's something that we don't even really have the option to have in our generation anymore. I think it's not just the work thing though. I think our generation is so much more sharing the parent duties too. I think our parents' generation was a, a lot more and it probably had a lot to do with, you know, the fact that dads were at work and moms were at home. But I mean, like thinking around even just our friend group, I think the guys do, you're the exception, but I think the guys do most of the cooking yeah. or, or, or at least a decent amount of the cooking. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I think as far as spending time with the kids, I think it's much, much more 50, 50 and with just about every parent I know these days. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, and a lot of it too, I mean, and again, this is, you know, you're always going to see that shift, right? So you look at our parents' generation and then you look at our grandparents' generation. And I mean, there's been a lot of progress there. I would say like, I mean, I very much remember, you know, my dad, you know, being on the floor with us playing board games or, you know, introducing us to video games and all of that and, and really being there, you know, being at practices and games and stuff like that. And that seems, you know, very different from what they grew up with and maybe what they experienced in their households where it was more of a, okay, like that was strictly a, uh, maybe the mom's responsibility and there wasn't as much maybe interaction treating your kids, you know, on a more, you know, a human personal level where they, you know, have their own thoughts and feelings that be respected. So, you know, so there's definitely, I feel like that uh, progress from that generation to uh, our parents' generation. And then just from our, our parents' generation to now, like there's no, like I was never raised in the sense where it was, you know, this is just your mom's job. You know, this was certainly, you know, my dad tried to be as involved as he could with how much he was working. Um, and, and I feel like now it's just like, it's not weird. Like I, I will occasionally see, we'll be out in public. This tends to happen a lot in like very large extended family and friend gatherings. And like, you know, we'll be at, we'll be there and, you know, kid needs to have his diaper changed or whatever. The kid needs to have a bottle made and be fun. And like, I'll just go to the diaper bag and I'll get everything out and I'll do the thing. And you'll get those people who are like, oh, you have a husband who does, you know, this basic, basic task that anybody should be able to do. And like, oh, my gosh, like, you're so lucky. And it's like, 
no, like this is just part of being a dad. Like I don't expect you to praise me for making a bottle and feeding my kid. Like this is the most basic, you know, element of being a dad. Like that's, that's not something to praise at all. So, you know, you'll still see that here or there, but I think, you know, in our generation, it's become much more typical to, you know, see, and again, there'll be those households where, you know, if, if your wife has that really good job or whatever, I mean, if, if my wife was, you know, making a shit ton of money, I would happily stay home with the kids and absolutely and do that. I'm not, I'm not saying I would necessarily, you know, keep the house in as uh, top shape as my wife does or whatever, but I would, you know, if that was something where it made sense for me to stay home and we were able to do that, I mean, I wouldn't really, you know, think about it. So. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I think I'm almost shocked these days when people have those kind of traditional gender role stereotypes, even when you see like the memes on Facebook, you know, the, the dads be at home, you know, the chilling or whatever, and, and mom is working hard. And I almost look at that like, is, is this person my age? Like, I, I, <laughs> the, I think the gender roles are seriously are just so gone. I think, I think it's so, I, I mean, and maybe that's just, I guess, the group of people we're around, but I think things have changed so much. And I think you touched on something really good with the idea of, of where our parents are from the generation above them. So, I mean, I think our parents, our parents were great. Yep. I mean, I think they were the first generation to really not parent with that authoritarian style that, you know, you do what I say because I said so. I think they were the first people to really realize the value of relationships with kids. And I mean, that was balanced with expectations. You know, we weren't getting away with murder, but at the same time, I think our parents did value that relationship. And I think we listened because we respected what our parents had to say. I don't, I don't think it was that fear base, you know, necessarily anymore of, you know, do what I say because there will be consequences. I think our parents really turned that corner of, of we listened because we wanted our parents, like we cared about what our parents thought and we wanted them to respect us. And I think that is one of the big challenges for our generation is we're trying to find that balance of love and also structure. And I think, our generation can sometimes maybe go a little bit too far in the love and, and not so much on the structure. I think it's hard in the world. I mean, I, I'm sure it was hard for our parents too, in, in a world that was getting more complex, but for us, I mean, I think our world is just getting so complex every day to be able to find that balance of love and structure is a constant balancing act. Yes, absolutely. So like I would say our parent parents generation has a good mix of you know love and discipline and st structure whatever that word you want to call it, call it is and you know maybe you know it's going to obviously vary household by household uh but you know in my own personal household maybe it swings a little bit more towards the the structure and you know you kind of err on that side of it whereas for sure i think you know you know i look around in my own household and and you know in our extended friend circles and and maybe we've swung a little bit too much or our tendency is to swing a little bit too much towards the love and, you know, maybe, you know, just tell me how you feel. And we're not necessarily going to have those consequences that we had in our houses growing up. Obviously we're talking, you know, it's sweeping general generalizations overall. Um, but, you know, Andy and I are just trying to relate our own personal experiences in the households that we grew up in. I um, mean, there's certainly things like, again, there, my son has said things to me, that if I had said to my father, like, I can't even imagine saying that, <laughs> saying that because I never would have had the stones to, you know, say something. And the, the biggest example that I can think of this is, uh, and again, I, I totally deserved it. I was, you know, at home, 
playing some computer game that was running long, and I had promised my son that I would take him to the park. And I'm sure this was somewhat assisted by my wife, but he walks in uh, with my wife right behind him into my office and says, Daddy, get off your ass and take me to the park. (laughs) And again, he's like three at this point, maybe. Like three or four. And I just turn and I look at him and my mouth just falls open. And I'm not mad. I mean, that was excellent grammar out of, you know, for how old that he was at that age. And and I deserved it. I mean, I was the one who was dragging my feet. But if you had told me that four-year-old Josh was going to say, Daddy, get off your ass and take me to the park. <laughs> oh, man, I wouldn't have been able to sit down for a week. So, um, you know, it's certainly, and again, that's just a, a harmless example. But um, there definitely are things where I maybe let my, let my children have a longer leash than I did. And for the most part, I think that's okay. I think that they they have earned it and they are they are overall very good kids or whatever. But there's certainly some times where, you know, maybe I, I sit back and I think later in the evening and I'm like, okay, maybe he flirted with the line a little bit more than I'm comfortable with. Have you ever run into any conflicts with the older generations in your family? So maybe even going, you know, beyond your parents into grandparents or anything like that with, as far as parenting, anybody ever make any comments i mean that's not how we did it in our day you know again i've certainly butted heads with my own parents in a very you know safe stereotypical way that you know i again i'm a new uh you know i'm a new dad and you know my wife's a new mom at this point things are again my my parents had had us when we were very young so there's a, a pretty good gap between me being a baby and, and, and my son being a baby. So, you know, things are different, right? Like, you know, b- bottles used to be microwave back in the day. And now they say, don't say that you may burn your baby and, you know, kids being put down on their stomach versus now it's, it's back to sleep. Um, and, you know, so, and, and, you know, and you get the, Oh, well, we did this for you and it was fine. And again, I, I told you, I, I'm sure I, at some point in the future, I'm going to be thinking that same thing, right? Like, you know, your base instinct as a parent is you don't want to do any harm to your children. So it's like, oh, you're now confronted with this new knowledge to say, you know, oh, we don't do it the way that you do. We do it this new way now because it's safer or it's better, you know, that intrinsically is going to cause you a little bit of cognitive dissonance and be like, oh, no, like, I I didn't mean to do that, you know, and, and to push back a little bit against that. So, but no, again, I have a very, you know, I grew uh taking you know from my uh from my parents particularly my dad you know i i don't really have time for other people's opinions who i i if i don't know you and i and you and you aren't a a major factor in my life i really can just brush off your opinion without without much thought so uh whether it's a polite you know just nod and a smile and just ignore what they say or whether it's a more brusque thanks for your opinion but i'm going to do things my own way i i haven't had anything too major yeah, I don't think I've had anything terrible either. I think there have been maybe some moments where I maybe picked up on a little bit of, you know, just those looks or something. I mean, we're not very gender stereotypical with either one of our kids, but especially my son. I mean, he'll wear pink. He'll, you know, he'll play with baby dolls and he'll play with trucks. And I have no problem with either one of those things. So I feel like maybe with some of the older generations, sometimes if he's playing with a what would be like a stereotypical girl toy you know you kind of see those looks and and I think I'm like you it's just kind of like I mean I'm very comfortable with this and 
I don't necessarily feel the need to explain it. So if you have a problem with it, go ahead and have a problem with it, but but do it over there. So yeah, I mean, I've gotten a kick out of my oldest son wanting, you know, he's you know, forever it was he wanted to be Batman when he grew up, and then it was a police officer. Now he's going through a phase over the last couple of weeks where he tells people he wants to be a dancer and to check out his dance moves. And, um, you know, again, what are we, are we going to, we're really worried about what the six year old wants to be when he, when he grows up that he's really going to be fully committed to that, you know, a decade or, or more later. And man, it's just, sometimes it's just so scary. You just, you look at your, you look at your kid and you just see your own reflection uh, looking at them and, Man, you know, me, six or seven rum and cokes in, and my son's dance moves, they, they, they look pretty much the same. Well, that's really when you're hitting your stride. So if those are the moves that he has, good for him, because that's six to seven is your prime. Six to seven is my <laughs> sweet spot. So, uh, yeah, so I don't, I don't, and again, that's also like, a, uh, I think that's particularly true for my family because again another thing that i've you know alluded to and we've touched on a little bit in the past is you know my second son uh, i love him very much he is autistic just like my brother is um and my parents grew up in a time when autism was still you know very new as far as being in the in the popular culture people knowing what it what it was and what it meant you know what kind of behaviors you might see what kind of things uh, a kid could or could not do. And again, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to paint with too broad of a brush. You know, there's a saying, if you've uh, met a kid with autism, you've met one kid with autism and, and you know, they're so different um, on, on what kind of, you know, behaviors and, and uh, personality traits you might see from them. Uh, but so it was hard. I mean, for my parents growing up, I mean, all, all props to them. Like, you know, we still went to church every weekend and, you know, some, old person turned around and gave us the hairy, hairy eyeball because my brother was making noises that were inappropriate, you know, or talking or, or, you know, couldn't stand the, the feel of his shirt on the back of his neck. You know, my dad would just, just glare at them until they, they turned back around. And, um, and, and so, you know, I, I dealt with that all growing up, you know, with my brother, who's just two years younger than me. Uh, so by the time, you know, my second son was approaching his, you know, 18 month checkup, you know, the writing was pretty much already on the wall. And we knew that was something that uh, we were going to have to deal with in our own family. And again, I mean, if I had, you know, maybe one fuck to give uh, after that point, I had zero fucks to give as far as, you know, if people said, you know, what is that boy doing? Or, you know, I don't, I don't have any time for that. And, and again, I, I, I can't say that I'm, that I'm a victim. I, I've, for the most part, you know, the, the friend circle and the family circle has been very accepting and loving. And I have no complaints uh, with how anyone has uh, uh, treated my, my second son as well. So, uh, but I, I just don't, I mean, there's so much going on in the world in my own, in my own family. I just don't have any time to give for, for random strangers whose opinions I don't value. And good for you. I, I, th I think that's great that you have that approach and just kind of working in the field where I, you know, I encounter a fair number of, of families with uh, they, of kids that have all, all kinds of different diagnoses, including autism. I think that can be a challenge for parents to kind of have that perspective of, 
who cares what people say? I think some people do get self-conscious. So good for you that, that you have that perspective of, I don't give a shit what you have to say. That's absolutely, I think, the right thing to say. And I have actually been pleasantly surprised in just a lot of my professional interactions that I do think the world in general is getting to be a little bit more understanding that kind of, you know, neurodevelopment comes in, in all different shapes and sizes and colors. So hopefully that's something that our generation can carry forward. And in this particular topic too, I mean, so much has changed in these last 30 years. Like, you know, we're down to an incident rate and about, you know, it's like for boys, it's like one in 59 or one in 69 or something like that. So it's much more in the culture. It's not, you know, some, you know, rare occurrence to see somebody who might be flapping their hands or, you know, chewing on something they shouldn't be chewing on or making, uh, you know, weird noises. Uh, it's much more in the culture. And again, I, again, I can't take nearly all of the credit. I, if I hadn't grown up in a family with a special needs uh, kid and my wife also has a, had a, a, a special needs cousin. And so kind of, you know, had some exposure that way uh, in that way as well. Um, you know, I might not be like that, but just because I had that valuable experience uh, with my own brother, it became that much easier to just say, you know, this is not something I'm going to concern myself with uh, for my own son. So I just wanted to make sure that my parents got the props that they deserve for that because uh, they definitely were uh, exemplary models for how to handle uh, a special needs kid. So Andy, a topic you have on here, and I think we, you know, we could do a whole podcast on, on this one specific item uh, is finding work-life balance being a dad. So uh, tell us what you think about that, how, how it's gone for you, maybe struggles you've had with that. Um, and then I'll do the same. Yeah, I think my biggest challenge is I spend a lot of the time at work wishing I was at home doing dad stuff because frankly, I enjoy that more. Um, <laughs> just going to be honest. Um, I, I like what I do for work, but I think being a dad is, is definitely the most important thing that I do. I've been lucky. I mean, I have a job that's, you know, nine to five, not a whole lot of extra time, not a whole lot of weekends. So it's, it's been really nice. And I, I think we've covered this previously. I've been working at home for the last six months. So, I mean, that's, that's been amazing to be able to just have, it's, it, it, it there's certainly challenges that come along with working from home and, you know, trying to, conduct a meeting while you have a, a three or four year old doing cartwheels in the background. But, <laughs> but this is almost like a second paternity leave that I didn't expect to have. I mean, you know, I never expected to have this, this time where I would be spending this much time with my kids at home. So I'm, I'm fortunate in the job that I have that I'm able to find a bit of that balance, I think, but, it, but it's always a challenge, you know, you, you do want to be able to, to push the career forward, you know, and to, to make those moves to be able to provide, but also to make sure that, you know, any job offers I've had, it's, it's always balancing. Sure. This pays more, you know, or maybe this is a step up in responsibility, but is it worth the consequences it'll take, you know, whatever it's going to take away from at home. So, you know, is it a longer drive? Is it more hours? Is it something that's not going to allow me the, the flexibility that I have? So, I mean, I think that's definitely a challenge for our generations, maybe previously it was easier for dads to say, you know, kind of just climb the ladder, make that money and, and make those, you know, it, it was that provider model where it's right. let's provide, you know, maximum, whatever, let's work that over time. And, and I think our generation is maybe getting away from that to where that, you know, you can make more money, but you can't make more time. 
Right. I mean, definitely, you know, the, the pluses and minuses, you know, change, you know, at various points in your life. And that's definitely something where, you know, I, I would say I have struggled a lot with this. Um, you know, again, I can console myself with the fact that I know that I need to, uh, you know, go work this job to provide the kind of life that I want for my wife and my children and myself. Um, and so, you know, that, and that, and that's fine. That takes me up to a good, you know, 40 hours. And then, you know, again, I've never been a, you know, a strict nine to five. I mean, I'm going to stay to get what I need done. Um, so, you know, if you get up with the 45 hours, okay, like fine. I don't, I don't really blink at that, but I mean, I've had stretches in my career where I worked 50, 55, 60 hours in on weekends, maybe both days, you know, in, in on holidays, trying to catch up. Um, and that's just something where it's just unsustainable uh, when you have children and, you know, you just, uh, there'd be times where, you know, be things that would happen at home that you miss, you know, maybe you miss a milestone, maybe, you know, first steps get taken uh, when you're not there, you know, maybe a, a word gets said that uh, you didn't get, you know, you didn't get to hear for the first time. Um, and so that was something where, again, I made my own personal move where I made maybe what I would call a lateral move um, from a money perspective and on a career trajectory perspective, but it ended up maybe shaving off 10, 12 hours a week of work where I, you know, could be at home. And that was, again, a hundred times out of a hundred, give me, give me that deal every single time. Um, and so it's, you know, I've certainly had phases where I, I'm going to kind of disagree with you a little bit. Like I do actually value the separation that comes from going into work and leaving the house and coming back. Um, you know, I've had stretches where, you know, I have the, I have the ability to work from home uh, here and there. I'm much more efficient uh, when I'm at work, when I have everything at my fingertips on site. Um, but really what happens when I end up working from home is just like, I, I can't turn the switch off. And this really kind of led me to my, you know, all the way through my career uh, trajectory. So I'm, I'm a undergraduate college student. I think I want to go to medical school and I, and I go shadow there and I see that the residents are working a hundred hours a week and it's just insane. And you're always thinking about your patients. And I was like, look, like the, you know, kind of my, uh, you know, guiding principle was work is just something to let me have the family life that I want to have. It's just a means to an end. Um, and so, you know, I can't, you know, have, you know, work constantly weighing on my mind 24 seven, like what I think you might need to be to be a good doctor. So I said, no, that's done. And then, so I was like, okay, well, I really like research and this is still in the medical field. So I went to grad school, as we talked about, I did my first year and I would go, we would go out to dinner with my fellow students and then, you know, it'd be six thirty, seven o'clock and I would just want to talk about anything but work, you know, you know, it's like, okay, I, I put a long day in, we went to classes, I was in the lab, let's talk about something else. And for most of my other compatriots, it would be, oh, I'm working on this experiment, I'm going back after dinner to run the next phase of this experiment. And again, it was just a constant like 24 seven, I could always be in the lab doing another experiment, you know, applying for another grant. And so that's really how I ended up working my way into industry. And not that you can't work from home and, 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 and take work home with you, 
but I leave in the morning, I go to work, you know, I'm checking my email on my phone to see if there's any kind of kid issues going on that I need to jump in with. And I, and I focus on work and then I leave work. And then at least until I come home uh, and, and after the kids go to bed, unless there's some kind of emergency, like work is done, work is in a small little black box in the back of my mind. Um, and it doesn't come out. And I, and I have a much harder time with that when I'm home and it's, I can run downstairs and get back on the laptop and send five more emails and then run back upstairs and feed the kids lunch and then come back down again. And, and because I'm working so inefficiently, I need to work longer. And it's just, you know, that was something that I've, I, I've struggled with and I think I've gotten into a good groove now, but it's a battle that I'm, you know, always constantly fighting. Yeah, I, I can <laughs> definitely connect with the idea of running upstairs and feeding lunch and running back downstairs and feeding emails. Uh, I think I like the idea of being around the kids as much, you know, as I have been, but I do agree. It, it is more inefficient for sure. I think it's easier to, to draw that line and, and maybe it's easier to, to be a parent in that moment too, where you don't have to have that work in the back of your head. So definitely pros and cons to working oh, from home versus for sure. heading into the office. Okay, Andy. So we've, uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I think that's one of the, one challenge that is maybe a little bit more specific to 2020. I mean, I think our generation, the idea of working from home is probably pretty foreign to our parents. So, mm -hmm. you know, maybe that's a specific 2020 thing, but I think there's just some general things that are different between parenting in our generation versus parenting in, in previous generations. And, and one I think that really sticks out to me is social media. And I think there's, there's maybe two perspectives to this. So one is, you know, our, our kids are young, you know, they're not on social media yet, but eventually they'll get to the point where we have to worry about that kind of social media safety of, of our kids using it. But I think another thing is just the idea of, of kind of that parent comparison. So is that something that you experience or at least, you know, have seen where, where people maybe compare themselves to those, those Pinterest perfect parents on Facebook and, and does that affect you at all in your parenting? Yes, I would say. Um, I I try not to let it. Um, and, and it also is just really like it goes to a whole nother level with a special needs kid, right? Like, so, you know, we all, you know, we have our kids, they're going to class, they have homework and all that. And you, and you hope that they're developing okay and they're doing well in school and they have good relationships. Um, and then, you know, with my special needs son, you know, again, it's, I think we've properly adjusted our frame of mind where like, again, uh, you know, my, my son, my second son just turned five. Uh, obviously he's not doing many, many, many of the things that a normal five-year-old would be doing. But uh, I, you know, I dropped him off at school this morning and I waved goodbye to him. Like I normally do try to make some eye contact with him and he was doing great with that. And he stopped and he turned and he spontaneously gave me a hug, which he very rarely does. And that, that's a great moment of celebration. Like I, I really just, you know, there are some things that, uh, those really small minor things can just mean the world to you uh, when you're in that type of situation. So it can be hard. I mean, again, not to, not to make any of my friends feel bad, but again, all of our kids are kind of that same age. You know, we're all, we all had kids relatively of the same age. I mean, your, your son just turned four. My son just turned five. We have a friend who's, uh, whose daughter is just, you know, barely older than, than my second son. Uh, and, you know, you see them playing together and you see how different they are. Um, 
and you know it really can just kind of be like oh yeah that that is what it could have been for him um but i'd say most most days we deal pretty well with it and then as far as the social media thing i mean yes i like to keep tabs on you guys in the sense that like oh is there a thing that you're doing that i'm not doing that would be beneficial for my kids or um you know is there something that you feel strongly about that you think is not a good idea and maybe i'm doing that or considering doing that thing um but as an actual like keeping up with the joneses um no i mean what what people put on their social media is often just so far from what the reality of their situation is that you know again there's so many people who are like oh i i live this wonderful perfect life on social media and then you actually talk to people who know them and, and realize how not great it's actually going so uh, it's a it's definitely a struggle yeah personally i don't think it bothers me so much because you know like like you were talking about you know i think i take a lot of the approach of i don't really care what other people are doing i don't necessarily have the time or the energy to devote to that but i think a lot of people do care about that and i think that is a big challenge to our to our generation you know more generally is a a lot of people are comparing themselves and when you're looking at somebody's social media i mean you're really comparing yourself to one whatever image they want to put out and two i mean some people's best days so you know yeah if if, if you're just putting those, the, your best days on Facebook, I mean, you know, if, if I have three or four friends that, you know, their kids are at Disney world, you know, and here we are just sitting at the table, you know, eating hot dogs. Yeah. It can, it can be a little bit easy. I think sometimes to, to look at that and, and get down a little bit, but the, I do think it's just, it's, I have a lot of, I, I think we'll probably have to do a social media episode because I, I have a lot of, I mean, Spoiler alert, I think Facebook is ruining ruining the world and especially our generation. So maybe we can get into that in another episode more generally. But I do think it's it's hard for me sometimes, I think, to see parents comparing themselves to the images that other people are are putting out on social media of like you said, I mean it's it, it's not necessarily reality. It's it's what somebody wants you to see. So that's that's a little personal soapbox I have of parents do the best that you can. I mean, just, just do the best that you can. You probably are doing the best you can as a parent and it's, it's not a competition and it's not, there's no reason to compare yourself to, to what everybody else is doing, especially because most of it isn't true anyway. Cosign a hundred percent. I mean, again, this, this did not make my Facebook feed. This, this actually happened this morning. And again, this is not, you know, a crazy, you know, a crazy aberration of a day uh, this morning. I was uh, woken up very early by the dog. I kind of was in and out of slumber with the dog on my lap. The dog ran off into the dining room and dropped a big turd right on the dining room rug. I got my kids ready. My second son ran off uh, with his toothbrush, and I I still don't know where it is. Uh, it's missing in the house somewhere. And my oldest son dresses himself, and when I came home, uh, this evening, my wife looked at him and was like, you let him go to school dressed like that. Uh, and that's kind of just a pretty normal average morning. And that that's not the morning that ever gets put on Facebook to be like, oh, look at my perfect family and my perfect life. Uh, but that's the reality of the situation. So, uh, you know, again, just just take it with a grain of salt, people. Um, I, I, I co-sign co 100% Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, next Secretary of Treasury, uh, Elizabeth Warren, is breaking your shit up. Uh, and, and so well, I hope you look forward to that uh, because Facebook is 
Facebook is just garbage. So, you know, maybe if people put more pictures of the dog turds in the middle of the carpet, <laughs> Facebook would be a better place to be, though. Oh, I console myself with the fact that we're going to eventually tear the carpet up out of that room. So, um, <laughs> ultimately, hopefully, it won't mean a whole lot. So, all right. So, another challenge I see. How. I think I'm just going to read it exactly how I put it on the outline. How do you raise kids that give a shit about the environment, the world, the, the place around us? So, and, and, and I guess I'll, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but, you know, kind of, I guess, playing off the social media a little bit. So our world is, is so much more globally than when we were kids. You know, we go look stuff up in the encyclopedia. We didn't necessarily have the world at our fingertips. So in an increasingly global society, how do we raise kids that, that are aware of that. So I'm fortunate that you are the one with the oldest kids, so you'll have to deal with it first and you can tell me how it goes. Um, yeah, I mean, that's certainly interesting, right? Like, you know, again, we grew up, I mean, I don't know if this was a common refrain in your household or whatever, but, you know, if we're kids and we, you know, we waste something at the dinner table or we, you know, you know, burn through something that was meant to last for a while. And it was like, you know, there are kids uh, in the world that don't have the same things that you have and, and maybe they're hungry and, you know, our parents trying to get us to appreciate those good things that we did have. Um, and that was less of a, you know, that was, that was pretty abstract for us when we were kids, you know, because you don't have that interconnectivity that you do with the internet now. And again, like, you know, this is not, I have, you know, I have an almost seven year old, you know, he can fly around on a Chromebook and, and go to all his favorite educational programs to do activities there or whatever. You know, he can work the iPad and play video games. He has a Nintendo Switch or whatever. Like, this is not unrealistic that, you know, in his early teenage years, he's going to be, you know, have a lot more access to the internet and, and could be exposed to a lot of things that, that we weren't when we were kids. Uh, really, I just think it's just, you know, you're the psychologist. Like, it's just modeling that good behavior, I feel like is really just going to be the critical thing, you know, to say it's not just about what goes on in this household. And it's not just look out for number one. It's, you know, taking, you know, giving examples and modeling behavior of, you know, being nice, being empathetic, you know, going out of your way to help somebody who's uh, maybe not uh, in as fortunate of a situation as you are. You know, I, I feel like my oldest and youngest are going to be one of the, you know, hidden blessings of having uh, a special needs sibling is you kind of that empathy kind of gets baked in right away. Like you see in your own family that there's somebody different um, that maybe needs some extra special, uh, you know, attention um, and care. And then you can easily, you know, extrapolate. It's much easier to extrapolate that out to, you know, there are other people who in my neighborhood or in my state or um, you know, even, you know, in our world that, you know, may be having also be having some issues and maybe don't have it as good as I do. Um, and so it becomes a little bit easier, but yeah, it's, that's going to be maybe one of the prime challenges for our generation raising our kids is just, you know, you're not just making decisions for you and your own family, for you and your own city, you and your own state. I mean, you know, I mean, let's just go to like climate change or whatever. Again, you know, the the emission standards and pollution standards that we set for our country, you know, affect the whole world. I um, mean, that's just a very easy, basic example. So, 
you know, it's definitely going to be a challenge. Um, and again, uh, you can, uh, you can walk me through it. Yeah. I mean, I think you hit on, on a lot of things that I probably would have said there. I mean, I think, I think it really starts with that role modeling and showing your kids, you know, things like recycling. I mean, just, just that simple basic stuff, you know, to, to get them to say, you know, in our house, this is what we do because kids pick up on that stuff. I do think, you know, I, I was definitely a little bit negative on the internet in that early segment, but, but it is cool to be able to expose kids. So when we were, like you said, when we were kids and our parents said, there's, there's people in the world that don't have that. We never had a face to put to that. You know, we never had Mm -hmm. necessarily that experience of, of seeing people struggle. And, and I think our kids can, you know, you said they can hop around the world on, on a Chromebook in five minutes. And, you know, it's, it's not an abstract idea of there's, there's people hungry in this country. I mean, you can go learn about that country. You can go see, watch a YouTube video about, you know, a place where people are maybe, maybe struggling for food. Um, I think kids programming, I'm, I'm a little bit on a, a PBS soapbox, I guess, cause I've, I've been big on that. You know, I had going back to, I listened to a little bit of our politics episode where we were talking about single issue voters. And I think if there was a candidate that was trying to get rid of, of PBS, I think I'd become a single issue voter. Um, <laughs> seriously. I mean, that's how strong I feel. I, I love it. I love PBS. I love PBS kids specifically. Um, but man, they're doing some really cool stuff with, with the world and with the environment. So before we recorded last week, um, PBS kids did a segment um on race and racism and they they tied it in there was a clip from arthur i think there was a clip from uh daniel tiger's neighborhood and it's just it's really interesting you know cnn did a town hall with with covid and then i think they they did a, a racial justice town hall as well so it's really interesting to see that that even you know and i mean we sat down and watched that as a family with with you know a nine and a three-year-old and then we had you know those conversations at that level of how can you be nice? How can you care about people that are different? How can you take care of the world and, and be a better place? And, and I think the most important thing is, is to just have those conversations. You know, it, you're not going to have a, a really deep involved conversation with somebody that's three, but to just talk about, you know, what are some good things you can do for the world? And, you know, recycle, I can, you know, turn the water off when I'm brushing my teeth and turn it back on to, to rinse my tooth, you know, those simple things. So I do think that's, that's something I have a lot of hope for both the generation that our kids are, that I think they're going to grow up being exposed to that, that more. And then just, you know, our generation as parents that, that we're really willing to take on those big issues with our kids and to have those conversations that, you know, maybe in the past were conversations that parents weren't having with kids, that they were keeping things on a lot more micro level. So I think that is one of the positives of the world becoming more global. So I, I think just talking, don't be afraid to talk to your kids and have those conversations. Well, if you can get my kids to turn off the lights after they leave a room, then God bless you, because I haven't been able to figure it out yet. Oh, man. Um, okay, that, that was definitely, again, I think that's something that you know, obviously you said that, uh, you know, you can have that conversation even with really young kids um, and, they, and they can get some benefit just being exposed to those ideas. Uh, but certainly, you know, as our kids get older and older, I mean, there's going to be so many things, uh, you know, about how society works and, and what you're going to run into, you know, when you go off to, you know, go off to college or move out and kind of make your own way through the world. 
and to just try and lay a solid foundation. You know, I, I think that's something that's true for every generation is you just try to lay a solid foundation by modeling your own good behavior and kind of letting your children, you know, explore what they think about certain ideas and you give them feedback based on, uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses and, and how that might happen in your own life. And then you just trust them to, you know, go off in the world and, and, you know, keep those lessons that you taught them uh, as, as best they can. So uh, switching to something a little more, well, I don't know, is this a little bit more lighthearted? So something that our generation is dealing with that definitely wasn't an issue for us is, you know, some of the, what we know now about contact sports, you know, I'm going to pick on football in this segment, uh, but really, I mean, hockey, uh, you know, soccer with headers, um, uh, depending on if they're allowed in your leagues, uh, you know, we know a lot more about uh, traumatic brain injuries, concussions, I mean, what they, uh, how severe those are, especially when young kids get them. So Andy, with all that being said, if your son wants to play football, would you let him play football? I mean, this is going to be an unpopular take, but no. Um, we, we've already had that conversation, and, and that's going to be a no with this CTE. I mean, it's not it, – it, it, it is the CTE. I mean, you know, you, you can fix arms, you can fix legs, you can fix ACLs, so I wouldn't want anyone to have to go through that. But no, I, I don't think we will. How about you? I think the official position of the Stoll household – is just to sit on pins and needles and wait it out and hope it never becomes an issue. Um, again, I I love my oldest son very much. He It almost kind of scares me how much of myself I see in him. And one of the things that I see in him is he just does not have that killer instinct uh, on the athletic field. And really, like, as somebody who played football, you know, pretty young, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade, um if you don't have if you don't want to hit somebody like actively, like I want to knock you to the ground or, you know, just ring your bell or, and, you know, really just kind of, you know, take out uh, that physical aggression on somebody, then I don't think you're really going to play football for very long. Uh, and he definitely does not have that at this point in his, in his life. Uh, my, my youngest son is a brute and, uh, and I cannot say the same for him, even though he's only, you know, one and a half at this point, almost. Um, so we'll we'll see at that point. But I, I honestly, I don't know yet. I mean, if they came to me and said, you know, Dad, I really love this and I really want to do this, I, I would kind of be on the fence. I mean, I, I would say the most extreme example would be like, if we were like, look, we're going to let you play, but it's a one and done thing where if like there's one incident, concussion you know even you know just something you know a little more mild where uh you know you you wonder if it's a full-blown concussion or not it would be a one and done type situation but honestly you know it's going to be a while before he's old enough to play football if he you know takes the baseball or basketball or one of these other uh, sports or if he you know is more like his dad and he's the captain of the quiz bowl and chess teams uh, I'm just going to wait it out at this point and, and hope that I don't have to make that decision. But, uh, and again, we don't know what's going to happen from a safety perspective over the next decade, as far as equipment and rules changes and all that. But it's, it's something that even, 
you know, maybe five, seven years ago, I would not even have thought would be an issue. But now I just think there's such an overwhelming body of evidence that it, it's kind of, you can't just, I, I don't really feel like you could just say, oh, yep, definitely no qualms with him playing at all. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. We'll see. Well, I like your answer better than mine because I, I, I 100% think there, I don't think there's a chance in the world that my son's going to want to play football either. So, I think I like your, uh, <laughs> well, hopefully we don't have to deal with it rather than just coming out with a flat out no. So, I, I mean, we're still a no, but yeah, I mean, I think. I could see him playing a drum in the band long before I could see him on the football field. And, you know, that's, it's much safer to be in the stands. You're not going to be getting hit in the head. So I, I will support that for sure. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll see about that, but um, man, I, I, I know. What, what do you think about hockey? Like, do you have any issues with that or whatever? See, hockey's nearer and dearer to my heart. So that, that's, but that's, that's, not, gonna be... that's not fair, though. That's not just because you didn't play football and you did play hockey. Yeah, I mean, I didn't say it was logical. <laughs> I just said it's near and dear to my heart. And I, I think I think the way you answered the football question, you know, I'm going to cop out a little bit here, but I think it's that, you know, if they if he came to me and said, I really want to play hockey, I think that would, that would be a, a much tougher conversation. Um, where I, I think I would try and find a way to spin it to say, let's give this a shot and then, you know, kind of see how it goes. And I do think hockey is probably heading in the direction, like you said, of, of some rules changes that are going to reduce those concussions. You know, I, I mean, I, th- I think at, at the minor hockey level, they've done a lot to try and make the sport safer. But I mean, at the end of the day, when you have people going as fast as they are on the ice, it's it's going to be tough to eliminate all of those risks. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he just turned four. We, we have some time, I think, before before he would be trying to get out. I mean, he does skate, but for him to, to want to play hockey. So I think that's something we'd have to evaluate, kind of the state of the game and the state of equipment. And yeah, exactly. I, I think I'd try harder to make an argument for hockey, but uh-huh. but I think it might be tough. At, what's, at what age do they allow, like, checking in, in kids' hockey or whatever? Is that – is it does that wait till high school or is it younger than that? When I was growing up, it was twelve. Uh-huh. I don't know if it's changed to. It wouldn't surprise me if it's a little bit later than that. But I think that gets into a tricky, a tricky situation too. So you also don't want people starting to grow like puberty man bodies and never having had that experience of hitting. So it, that's kind of a double edged sword. Of yeah, you don't want little you know young kids going around taking each other's heads off but at the same time you have to learn how to do it i I, i'm friends with a couple of soccer coaches that they coach like at the high school level that i worked with before and and they say that they hate the the header rules because i think i think it's like 14 i think it is like high school now before Mm -hmm. kids can can head the ball in soccer and they say they kids are now trying headers for the first time they have no idea what they're doing but you know they're trying to head crosses and shots that are coming in pretty hot and they said they think it's it's probably more dangerous the way they're doing it now because the kids just have none of that skill base so they're they're trying to play catch up i'd have to look it up to see if they've changed any of the rules for for the hitting in hockey but i can definitely see that being a a double-edged sword of you know you you want kids to learn how to hit safely before they're putting on those pounds and then they're really putting force into one another no, that makes sense. 
This concludes part one of our episode on fatherhood. Stay tuned for later in the week when we'll be back to finish this conversation and to do our list of the week.